Well, good morning. My name is Bill Gorman. I serve as the campus pastor here at the Brookside campus and um, just want to add my welcome to Kellen's. We're really glad that you're here this morning. Thanks for uh, joining us here at Christ Community. And uh, if this is your, especially if this is your first time or you're in the process of trying to find a church home, maybe you've been away from church for a while or um, just you're new to the city and you're looking for a place to call a home and a church. Um, we hope that Christ Community can be that for you, and um, hopefully you've been warmly welcomed already. If I or any of our other pastors or congregation members can serve you or help answer questions in any way, we'd be delighted uh, to do that this morning um, or sometime else throughout the week. And uh, before we begin and look at our passage in the Gospel of Matthew that we're studying, um, most of mentioned we've been in the Gospel of Matthew for a while now, I'd love to begin and just pray, ask that God would help us in this process, and, uh, and then we'll read Scripture here in a moment. So um, let's just pray and ask for God to be with us in this. Father in heaven, thankfully uh, you are here with us already. You are always uh, present And we're thankful for that. We pray now that as we uh, prepare uh, to look more closely at the Gospel of Matthew, that you would be at work um, in each one of us, um, clearing away the things that keep us uh, from seeing what you want us to see in this passage. We pray this in Jesus' name, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, I want to begin this morning asking a question, and that is simply this. What do you do when God tells you no? What do you do when God tells you no? Because whether you consider yourself a Christian or not this morning, um, you've probably prayed at some point in your life uh, to God or to the universe or to anyone who would listen And if you've prayed, and and again, research shows that that most of us in this room statistically have prayed. Uh, A survey even back in in 2004 found that that 30% of people who would call themselves atheists uh, admit to praying sometimes. Um, If you've had the experience of praying, you've probably also had the experience of not receiving the answer that you wanted when you prayed. And if you're anything like me, not receiving that answer that you wanted probably has been a cause at least to question or to doubt God or His goodness or His provision or His care for you, or even maybe for some of you here this morning, it's actually caused you to turn away from Him, to to walk away completely. And when I look at this room this morning, I know many of your stories. I've, I've sat with you in hard moments, prayed with you in difficult circumstances. Of marriages that, that are failing. Of, of a longing for a spouse that, that hasn't come. In moments of, of sickness and pain that just seem like they won't ever go away of having prayed desperately for a loved one uh, only to have them die, even the death of, of, of children. I mean, you've prayed for God to act, to rescue, to heal, to salvage, and the answer has come back at least a, as a de facto no. 
Perhaps in that moment, in the moment of the no, in those maybe moments of no, as you've prayed again and again and the answer just keeps to be coming back no, you felt abandoned. You felt alone. You felt as if God doesn't hear you. Maybe He doesn't exist. Maybe He just doesn't care about you. That He doesn't understand what it's like. Now, with that in mind, I want to read our passage this morning. Matthew chapter 26, verses 36 through 46. If you're using one of the pew Bibles in the rack there in front of you, you can pull that out. It's on page 832, Matthew chapter 26. We'll begin reading verse 36. And again, if you are here this morning and you don't have a, a Bible of your own, please feel free to take that pew Bible home with you. We'd love for you to have that. Uh, as a gift from us if you don't have a Bible of your own. So now hear Jesus' words, Matthew, God speaking to us, beginning here in verse 36. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, He began to be sorrowful and troubled, and he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to the point of death. Remain here and watch with me. Going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, for a second time, he went and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and he said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Jesus knows what it's like. Jesus knows what it's like to pour out his heart in prayer, to plead with God, and to be told no. To not receive what he preferred, what he wanted, what he desperately longed for. And yet this morning as we look at this passage in Matthew, one thing is unmistakable. And that is that we should always say yes to God, even when he says no to us. Always say yes to God, even when he says no to you. It's what we see Jesus doing here in this passage, the very Son of God pleading with God the Father and the Son surrendering, saying, not my will, but your will. Yes to me, yes to you, even when that means no to me. Saying yes to God when he says no to us. 
Uh, it's not an easy thing to, to do. In fact, it's probably the hardest thing that many of us may ever do in our lives. It's not easy, but it's good. It's the way to live the life that we long to live. You see, a life with Jesus is full of paradox. And this is one of those paradoxes that in saying yes to God, even when he says no to us, perhaps over a lifetime, that that's the only way to lasting joy. But how do we pray like that? How do we trust like that? How do we surrender like that? Always saying yes to God, even when he's saying no to us. Well, I promise you we're not going to be able to fully answer that question, those questions here this morning. There's a lifetime there. But the passage this morning that we're looking at does give us a starting place to begin to wrestle with those questions. It gives us some, some handholds, some footholds as we begin to climb the mountain of continually saying yes to God, even in the face of Him saying no to us. So I want to look at that together this morning. The story that we're examining this morning, this, this passage of Scripture, it actually begins a little bit earlier than the verses that we read. And uh, Melissa mentioned that this after Jesus celebrated the Passover meal, um, that's what we looked at last week, the Passover meal celebrated God's deliverance of His people from Egypt. And Jesus in the Last Supper, this moment as He's celebrating the Passover with His disciples, makes this, this amazing moment in the story where he says this, this meal that you celebrated for, for generations and generations has is, is really always been about me and it's about God's deliverance of, of the whole world through me. That's what we looked at last week. And so after Jesus and his disciples celebrate that Passover meal, they leave the home where they were eating and they sing a hymn together and they walk out the city and they begin to climb up the hills into the Mount of Olives. And as they're walking, Jesus makes a really, a really stunning statement. It would have been, I think, a, a, another jarring moment for the disciples. He says this in verse 31 of Matthew chapter 26. Then Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Now, we saw last week that Jesus had already predicted that one of the disciples would betray him, but now he tells them that they all are going to abandon him. And we have to remember, these are Jesus' 12 closest friends on earth, his most trusted companion, companions, and he says they will all run away from him. Now, the Apostle Peter, who's always been one of the bold ones in the group, immediately jumps in and says, no way. No way, Jesus. I will never fall away. And Jesus replies, Peter, Peter, tonight, in just a few hours, Peter, you're going to deny me three times. And Peter's indignant. Never. Never, Jesus. Even if I have to die with you, I'll never deny you. And this is the moment when all the other disciples, not to be outdone by Peter, chime in and they say the same thing. They agree. Even if it means death, we'll never deny you. We'll never fall away from you, Jesus. 
And in this moment, I can just imagine sort of an awkward silence falling over the group as Jesus just kind of looks at them, doesn't say anything, and just keeps walking on. And they walk on further to a place called Gethsemane. They're in the Mount of Olives. There's lots of olive trees around. Gethsemane just means olive press. They go to this part uh, of the mountain where there's an olive press, this Gethsemane, and Jesus tells his disciples to wait while he goes on a bit further to pray. Now, he's just asking them to wait. He's not asking them to to die with him. He's simply asking them, would you stay here and, and wait while I go and pray? But as he's about to walk away from the group, Jesus stops, and and he's clearly in distress, and I don't think that disciples have ever seen Jesus like this before. And he looks at Peter and John and James, and he says, will you come with me? Jesus had this group of 12 followers, 12 disciples, but these three, Peter, James, and John, were the closest friends, his best friends. Jesus says, would you come with me? And as they walk away from the group, Jesus confides in those three. He says to them in verse 38, my soul is very sorrowful, even to the point of death. Would you remain here with me and watch? He tells his best friends that he's overwhelmed with grief and sorrow and pain. And Peter, James, and John, they'd spent the last three years with Jesus. Nearly every day over the last three years, they were with Jesus. They had seen Jesus at, at, the, at the height of his, his, his power on earth. They'd seen him heal. They'd seen him feed thousands of people with just a few loaves and fish, not once, but twice. And they had seen Jesus at the height of when he revealed his glory. Peter, James, and John were the only three disciples who saw Jesus transfigured, this kind of bizarre moment in the Gospels where Jesus kind of peels back um, a bit of, of heaven and they see what Jesus was like sitting on the throne of God in heaven. They'd seen him at the height of his power and glory, but they'd never seen Jesus like this before. They'd never seen him in this kind of pain, this kind of sorrow, this kind of anguish. And Jesus looks into their eyes and makes a simple request, stay here with me, watch with me. Again, Jesus isn't asking in this moment for them to be particularly brave or for them not to, to run away or, he's in, or, or to die with him. He's just asking them, would you be near me in, in my sorrow? Verse 39, and going a little further, Jesus fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. I want to pause here and just ask the question, why in this moment is Jesus so upset? Why is he so distressed? Why is he so sorrowful? Sorrowful, he says, even to the point of death. Why is this all hitting and coming in this moment? Why does the Son of God plead with God the Father for another way? And and what is the cup that Jesus speaks of in his prayer that he's asking to be taken away? Well, when you uh, study scholars and, and look at what they say about this imagery of the cup in, in the kind of all of biblical literature, what you find is that it's clear that, that it's the contents of the cup, what's inside of the cup, whether that's literally or figuratively, that makes it significant. 
And it can be used in a lot of different ways. The, the cup can be filled with blessing that's being poured out, or it can be filled with death and wrath. And it's the ladder that Jesus refers to here. Jesus is facing the reality that he will drink the cup of God's wrath. All of God's settled opposition towards sin and rebellion in the world that separated him from his people, all of the separation and anguish that have resulted from sin being in the world, all of that was going to come, is going to come on God the Son in this moment. And this is where we can't forget who Jesus is. Jesus is truly and fully human, yes. And he's also truly and fully God. See, Christians believe in one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And this means that no one knows better the holiness and wrath of God than Jesus, because he is God. Jesus knows the anguish that's coming. Yes, the anguish of the physical pain of being crucified on a cross, one of the most painful forms of execution ever devised. But the heart of the anguish is it's not physical pain. Because even mere human beings like you, like me, can endure vast amounts of physical pain if we have a reason to live. If we have people who love us, people who we love. But without the love of others, even a life that is relatively free of pain and suffering can quickly become unbearable. We see this in the stories of people who seemingly have every material need met, who aren't in pain, aren't in suffering physically but who attempt suicide because they are isolated and lonely. Jesus is facing the loss of love and relationship. He's facing the reality that his best friends will abandon him and betray him, and even greater, I mean so much greater beyond our imagining that the Father, God the Father, will turn away from God the Son and all the vast chasm of separation and isolation of sin uh, between God and humans is going to be placed upon Jesus, and it will crush him. This is how Sally Lloyd-Jones, who authored the children's Bible, the Jesus Storybook Bible, this is how she describes this reality in, in her children's Bible. She says, when people ran away from God, they lost God. It was what happened when they ran away Not being close to God was like a punishment. Jesus was going to take that punishment. Jesus knew what that meant. He was going to lose his father. And that, Jesus knew, would break his heart too. And then this is how she describes the moment of separation on the cross. I think she captures this so poignantly. Papa, Jesus cried frantically searching the sky, Papa, where are you? Don't leave me. And for the first time and last, when he spoke, nothing happened. Just a horrible, endless 
silence. God didn't answer. He turned his face away from his boy. It's that moment that's on Jesus' mind when he pleads with the Father in the garden, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. And this is where we see the first handhold that we can grasp onto as we begin to climb the mountain of always saying yes to God, even when he says no to us. And we see that we must pray honestly, even when we think we know what we should say. We should pray honestly, even when we think we know what we should say. You see, Jesus, God the Son, in his prayer to God the Father, begins with where he is. He doesn't start with the first thing out of his mouth being, your will be done. No, he starts with, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. I don't want to do this. Uh, Think about that. That the Son of God starts with his, his weakness, starts in his pain. We can do the same thing. See, God knows our hearts. He knows your feelings. There's no need to hide from him, to pretend they're not there. I mean, because you can't in the end hide from him anyway. He knows. So start with where you are. Pray honestly. It's the first step to real intimacy, to real relationship with the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Pray honestly. That's what Jesus does here. And you may be wondering at this moment too, but hasn't Jesus been predicting his death now for like several chapters? We've been pointing out that Jesus says this is coming, and and didn't he just predict that his disciples would betray him and abandon him? And and hasn't he been saying in connection with all those things that all that must happen to, to fulfill what's been written in the scriptures? So if Jesus knows all this, he's been predicting all this, he says it's been written down in the scriptures, then then why is he asking for another way? Doesn't he know there isn't another way? And I think this is because Jesus is truly and fully human, not just truly and fully God. And as human beings, we know this, right? That, That knowing something in theory, knowing that it's coming in the future, is different than facing it in the moment. I mean, think about surgery, or childbirth. You, you may know for weeks, or in the case of childbirth, for months, that that moment is coming, that indeed it may be unavoidable. But the night before it's actually going to happen, you still may plead, is there another way? I'm scared. See, we must combat the lie that I have to have my life together, I have to have my theology all worked out and and precise, and my words all nice and neat when I come to God in prayer. You don't. Begin where you are. Pray honestly, even when you think you know what you should say or what the right thing to say is. Pray where, where you actually are, or even if you don't have any idea what to say at all, pray that. Say, God, I don't know what even how to pray. Begin where you are, Jesus did. And after he prays, Jesus goes to check with his three best friends, Peter, James, and John. His friends who said they'd they'd never abandon him, who would die with him. 
wants to connect with them again for a moment and look at verse 40. And he came to the disciples and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, so could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, for a second time, he went away and prayed, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. So what we see here is not only will the disciples not die with Jesus, they can't even stay awake and pray with him. I mean, imagine the death of Jesus' loneliness in that moment. I, I can only imagine that. And, and he knows this is going to happen, but again, it, it's another thing to experience your best friends not even being able to stay awake with you in your sorrow. And Jesus reminds his disciples that they must pray too like he's praying, that they can't overcome the, the temptation to fall asleep and to be sort of spiritually unawake with bodily willpower alone, if, if they are to stay awake physically and alert spiritually, they must receive help in prayer. Jesus knows that about himself, that he must receive that help in prayer. They must also, but they don't listen. And Jesus goes and prays again, and then he comes back again to find them sleeping again. He doesn't even bother to wake them up this time. And then he goes again and he prays the exact same thing again. And this leads us to the, the second handhold, the second foothold in our, in our climb to always say yes to God, even when he says no to us. And that is that we must pray relentlessly, even when we're told no. Pray relentlessly, even when you're told no. Jesus prays the same thing three times, even knowing God's will, even knowing the scriptures must be fulfilled, even having gone once and asked if it would be possible, is there another way? And, and receiving a no in that moment, Jesus, God the Son, goes two more times to God the Father in prayer. Matthew tells us, saying the same words again. Saying the same words again. Jesus doesn't even change the prayer. If Jesus already prayed once, even twice, why does he go again and pray the exact same thing again? Because denied prayer isn't wasted prayer. Denied prayer isn't wasted prayer because denied prayer can still cultivate intimacy with God the Father. Because you see, prayer isn't primarily a place where we come trying to get more from God. It's a place where we come asking to get more of Him. The view of prayer we get in the Bible is one dominated by the idea of relationship rather than transaction. It's the pagans who have a transactional relationship with God or the gods who, who view the gods as ones to be controlled and manipulated and appeased with sacrifices and acts of persuasion and that if you can just sort of give the gods enough, then, then they can be manipulated in doing what you want. That's a pagan view of God. But the one true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the maker and creator of the world, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he wants a relationship with his people. He wants them to share in the relationship and delight that exists within the dance of the three in one Godhead, and he will not settle for mere transaction. 
And you see this in Jesus' prayer here. He prays to not God or the gods, he prays to my Father, my Father. And you see, even in receiving a no, Jesus continues to go to his Father because there's a relationship. And Jesus is strengthened through the relationship even though his request is denied. Do you have that kind of relationship with the God of the universe? One where he can tell you no, but you still go to him because you love and trust him. And where else would you go? The sort of relationship that you cling on to even when it seems like there isn't good reasons to cling on anymore. That sort of relationship only develops over time with regular practice in prayer. And we've seen this in Jesus' life. This sort of prayer is normal for him. It's routine. It's his practice of, of stepping away, but both from the crowds, but even from his disciples, to be alone and pray with the Father. It's his practice. And this combats the lie that God doesn't really hear me, that I don't really matter to God. You see, even a no from God isn't meant to push us away, but to draw us in. In fact, it isn't sometimes until we receive a no from God that we really know whether or not we want God for who he is or just for what he can give us. Sometimes it isn't until we receive a no from God, whether we know in ourselves whether or not we, we want God for who he is and the relationship we have for him or whether we just want what he can give us. Do we want him or do we just want his stuff? And in verse 45 and 46, we see the result of Jesus' prayer, what that prayer, even that denied prayer, does for him. We saw earlier a Jesus who is sorrowful, even to the point of death, but who is now strengthened, ready to face what is ahead. Verse 45, then he came to the disciples and said to them, sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. My betrayer is at hand. Jesus is now resolved and ready. Why? Because he has surrendered completely to the will of his Father. And this is the final handhold that we see in this passage this morning as we begin to learn what it means to continually say yes to God even in the face of him saying no to us. Surrender to completely to God the Father in his perfect will, even when it seems like you've been abandoned. Surrender completely, even when it seems like you've been abandoned. Uh, you see this language in Jesus' prayer over and over again, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Jesus, God the Son, knows that it is in complete surrender to the will of God his Father that he will find hope. It's also important for us to know that complete surrender also means continual surrender. It's not just a one-time act or a one-time moment or one-time decision. In fact, in the most difficult areas of our lives, the work of surrender may be daily, even hourly or minute by minute at times. Maybe you experience just a persistent same-sex attraction that, that won't go away. 
Or maybe you've been longing and longing for a new job or a job at all that just won't come. Or or maybe you've been diagnosed with an untreatable condition that just looms out into the future with no end in sight. Or maybe you were born with a disability that isn't going away. You see, the work of completely surrendering to God, trusting Him to provide strength, is never a one-time thing. And it's often the most difficult in the face of persistent conditions with no end in sight. And it compats the lie that that I have to surrender that one big thing one time and then then I'll be fine. You see, more often than not, I'm learning at least in my own life, that God's answers to my prayers are often not, okay, Bill, let me, let me take this struggle or this difficulty or this problem completely away from you. Rather, the often answer is this, my grace is sufficient for you, and my power is made perfect in weakness. And that doesn't mean I don't pray honestly, that I don't pray relentlessly about difficult circumstances or, or situations or people or health things that are going on in, in my life or the lives of the congregation. I do pray that, but more and more, I'm also praying, God, would your grace be sufficient for me? Would your grace be sufficient for them? Would your power and your glory be made perfect in my weakness, in our weakness, in our inadequacy? Always say yes to God even when he says no to you. Surrender your will to his. C.S. Lewis has famously written in his book, The Screwtape Letters, that Satan's cause is never more in danger when a follower of Jesus looks around upon a universe in which every trace of God seems to have vanished and asks why he has been forsaken and still obeys. Because you see, that sort of trust in God the Father can only ultimately lead to life and joy. And we know this is true because we see it in the life of Jesus. Jesus is the one person who always said yes to the Father even when he was told no. And Jesus is the new and better Adam who reverses what the first Adam did. Adam was the first human being who in the Garden of Eden does just the opposite of what Jesus does in the Garden of Gethsemane. In the Garden of Eden, the first Adam said to God, my will be done. And death and enslavement of the world and indeed of all of humanity was the result. But Jesus, the Son of God, the true and better Adam in the Garden of Gethsemane says to God the Father, your will be done. And the result is life and freedom and the death of death and the hope of resurrection. Writer Philip Yancey put it this way, when Jesus prayed to the one who could save him from death, he did not get that salvation. He got instead the salvation of the world. You see, God the Father's no to Jesus doesn't fully explain the nuance of every no that he will tell you over the course of your life. There are mysteries there that we may never plumb the depths of. But the Father's no to Jesus does assure you that the reason for his no to you can't be that he doesn't love you. Can't be that he doesn't want what's best for you. 
can't be that he wasn't willing to give his own son to save you and to know you and to bring you into a relationship with him. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, would you help us to always say yes to you even when you, for reasons that we may never understand, say no to us. It's a scary thing to pray, Father, for all of us. I pray that you would, through prayer, give us the strength to do that. In Jesus' name, amen.